My writing is an accounting of my imperfections. I wasn't born imperfect. I came to be this way through decades of attempts and failures to be perfect. My plays aren't self-flagellation or acts of contrition, but notations marking time with hope that hindsight might reveal a sort of evolution. Most of this work is not literally addressing any of these failures, my imperfections. It is instead intended to be allegorical, indicating to others that it is indeed possible to be the imperfect human you are, work toward perfection, fail, and yet ultimately become better. Subtext, friends. On this month's episode, I speak with one of the all-time great American playwrights, David Henry Huang. He's won multiple Obie Awards. Three of his works, M. Butterfly, Yellow Face, and Soft Power, have been finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. M. Butterfly won the Tony Award for Best Play, making him the first Asian American to win the award. Several of his works have been produced on Broadway. In essence, he's a legend and a playwriting hero to many, including me. While you are here listening, please go rate and review the subtext on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And if you like what we're doing here, please share with your social networks. We have some excellent episodes coming up soon, including something special we have never done before, so keep a lookout for our July episode. If you're on Twitter, you can find us at Subtext Podcast, and we recently started Facebook and Instagram pages as well, so find us and link to us there. I haven't plugged our phone number in a while, so if you want to call in and leave us a voicemail that maybe I'll use on the show in the future, who knows? The number is 505-302-1235. Okay, onward to my chat with David Henry Huang. We talked about success, failure, compartmentalizing, and the questions he asks himself through his writing. This conversation was recorded over Zoom on May 10th, 2021. Are you in New York right now? Yeah, um, I'm in Brooklyn uh, at my home in my office. And uh, this is where I've spent the pandemic, which is actually a pretty good place to have spent it because it's um, you have more room than, you know, than if we were living in uh, Manhattan. Uh, but it's still Brooklyn, so you can still order food. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. But I mean, for the, for those of us who don't live in New York, a year ago, this didn't seem like the best place to be during the pandemic, right? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly um, Manhattan felt kind of scary just because um, the, of the density of the population um, and people living in high rises. Um, and then, of course, New York was the epicenter for a while. 
and uh, that was scary. Um, and yet there were these kind of nice moments where, you know, New Yorkers are usually not wonderful to each other. And <laughs> there was that whole ritual for a while where we would all kind of come out on our stoops and bang, you know, clap or make noise to celebrate the uh, essential workers at 6 p.m. every night. And I happen to live about two blocks from Brooklyn Hospital. So it was, we felt like the workers could hear us. And uh, moments like that were uh, some uh, saving grace for what was a, a, a dark time. How far do you feel like we are from that, that feeling of community that you know, because I feel like, you know, New York was such like a microcosm for the way we initially kind of came together as as people uh, in response to it. And I, because I remember seeing all these videos, I remember seeing people singing. I remember seeing Broadway performers singing out their window and and that was so wonderful. And it, and it was it was uplifting. Um, how far have we moved from that? Yeah, I mean, uh, particularly, I remember the videos of uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell, uh, who was singing out his window uh, uh, regularly. And right, like so many other things in our country, it uh, became politicized, it became uh, exploited, in my opinion, by um, the former president and the right wing to um, try to deny and obfuscate and deny facts. And that division continues till this day. So um, the unity that uh, we felt uh, in New York in the early days of the pandemic um, has maybe continued health-wise, at least in New York. But um, then we were, uh, you know, we're currently facing this uh, spike in anti-Asian, anti-AAPI racism, uh, which really has existed since the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, as an Asian person, uh, I've been feeling pretty insecure about going out, you know, without sunglasses um, for, um, you know, since last March. Um, so there are, you know, several different kinds of divisions that can crop up um, even in a place as, uh, as multicultural and, and diverse and uh, sometimes tolerant as New York. It's, it seems like a little bit of jumping into the deep end of the pool to start to start here, but we're here, so what the hell. Uh, can you talk about what happened when you were assaulted? Because that relates to, you know, this, I mean, I'm a, I, I don't know, I don't mean to assume, but it seems like it must relate to that feeling you have now of not wanting to leave your apartment without sunglasses on. Yeah, um, so I've taken to identifying myself recently as um, an OG, anti-API hate, you know, survivor. And um, yeah, about, um, about four years ago, I was, um, just walking, I was on my block around 9 p.m. on a Sunday night. I'd gone to get some groceries and um, I was uh, stabbed in the neck by an unknown assailant who I saw running away, uh, but didn't feel like I could 
you know, I, I didn't feel like I was going to go after him. I didn't initially realize that I'd been stabbed. I just thought someone hit me on the back of the head. And uh, when I put my hand up to where I'd been hit, it came away uh, covered with blood. And fortunately, we live about, as I said, two blocks away from Brooklyn Hospital. Um, so uh, with the help of my wife and daughter, uh, I managed to walk to the emergency room and passed out there and turned out that the attacker had severed my vertebral artery and I'd lost about a third of my blood. But um, I was, you know, that weekend I was out and I went to see um, Allegiance, the, um, the musical on Broadway that uh, George Decase and Leah Salonga uh, had starred in. So I was uh, so much more fortunate than so many others who are attacked. And at the time the NYPD didn't call uh, my assault, uh, a hate attack. Um, now I think post-Georgia, we realize, oh, they never call anything a hate attack. Um, but an assemblyman named Ron Kim called a press conference at the time to denounce anti-Asian uh, hate and attacks. How did this change how you feel, how you felt about stepping out of your apartment? Like the next time you stepped out to go to allegiance or the next night or the night after to do something did you like feel yeah I, I i mean i think that i'm probably sufficiently compartmentalized that um it was just sort of important for me to like get out there right away and get back to doing things and go to the theater and um and and resume my normal life and in some sense i probably didn't uh, really process it until I uh, incorporated it into um, the show that uh, uh, the musical that Janine Tesori and I wrote uh, that opened at the public uh, 2019 pre-pandemic called Soft Power in which there is an autobiographical character um, who gets stabbed in the neck and um, sort of has a fever dream of this musical. Um, and you know, I remember when I was writing the first draft of Soft Power, I wasn't expecting to have it to have anything to do with my stabbing, uh, but I just started, uh, I found myself writing about it and I thought, you know, this is never going to stay in the show, uh, but then it became this sort of central plot point and clearly my, um, you know, I used my subconscious uh, through my work to discover things about myself, to answer questions uh, that, uh, that I'm confused about. And so clearly this was another example of using the work to process and come to a deep understanding of the trauma that had occurred to me um, when I was stabbed. And did that happen? I mean, did you, did, was, it, was it a cathartic experience? You know, did it trigger like PTSD in you? Um, it didn't trigger PTSD as it mu as much as it did um, a kind of willingness to say that what had happened to me had been a hate attack. Um, even though this assemblyman had called a press conference at the time, I was reluctant and I was like, oh, you know, the police don't say it's a, a, a hate attack and everything. Um, and I think processing it through writing, you know, it's weird when you're attacked, there's a 
part of you, or at least my experience is that there's a part of me that felt ashamed, you know, which is really counterintuitive because I'm not the one who, you know, attacks somebody. Um, and to kind of overcome that degree of shame and be willing to consider myself uh, or to, to recognize myself as a victim and survivor. I think that um, that was made possible through working on the musical. Hmm. How did it feel the first time you saw that, that moment? You know, I think again, I get really compartmentalized and I'm sort of analyzing it the way that I would anything else in a show that I'd written. However, my collaborators, uh, director Lee Silverman and Janine Tesori, um, they throughout the development process kept pushing me to take my character and my stabbing more seriously. So at a certain point, I realized, oh, what I've done is created this weird psychodrama where I have to take um, the assault seriously, quote unquote, for the good of the show. And um, so that's how I tend to process things. <laughs> uh, have you always been that way? Like a person who uh, finds it easy to compartmentalize? I think I've always been pretty compartmentalized, but it became kind of glaringly obvious in the, in the wake of the stabbing because it's something that, um, you know, despite feeling nervous about going out over the past year um, with anti-Asian hate during COVID, which I guess is my version of being somewhat triggered. Um, but despite that, um, I really haven't felt a lot of emotional reaction to having, you know, having had that happen, uh, except I can feel things when I'm watching the musical. Mm. Mm. Uh, I know this wasn't, this soft power wasn't the first time you've written a character that is named after you, inspired by you. I'm not sure how to, how to frame it. Um, yeah, I say I say I, I, what your original um, phrase named after me because I think as writers we all write autobiographical characters we just don't usually name them after ourselves. <laughs> right, right. Uh, what was the first time you found yourself doing that? Um, so probably would be with um, Yellowface, which was my play that opened at the public in two thousand and seven, eight, one of those. Um, and um, in that case, it was because, well, there, a, a few things had happened. Um, I, there had been a couple of Asian American filmmakers who put me in their films playing myself. So I kind of got used to this idea of, oh, I could be a character. And then, you know, I'm not the first person to do this. I, I like when Doug Wright did it, in I Am My Own Wife, I kind of made a mental note about that as a possible technique. And in the case of Yellowface, I was writing about uh, the, the inciting incident was the protest against the casting of Jonathan Price as the Eurasian pimp in the original Broadway production of Miss Saigon. And I was prominently featured in that protest. So then all those things started coming together and it kind of made sense just to do kind of a stage mockumentary and name the main character after myself. But DHH in Yellowface um, 
does it is sort of a farcical character and does a, a lot of stupid things. And that was why, in contrast to DHH in Soft Power, uh, Janine and Lee were telling me that you know this time you need to take the character a little more seriously. I love to know when I uh, when I have these conversations with playwrights about the time way way back when you were a kid and sort of first first finding that writing was something for you. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't grow up in a family that went to the theater. My parents were immigrants. Um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. But when I was 10 years old, uh, my maternal grandmother fell ill. And I was one of these kids who was just always interested in kind of stories of family history. So um, I felt like if she passed, we would be, you know, have this double loss in that we, of course, lose my grandmother, but we would also lose all these stories. So I asked my mom if I could spend the summer with her in the Philippines where she was living at the time and went over and did what we would now call oral histories, got a bunch of stories on cassette tapes, and then uh, came back to LA and wrote sort of a 90 page nonfiction, you know, quote unquote novel about the history of my family. Uh, which got Xeroxed and distributed by, to my relatives, got very good reviews. Um, and, th <laughs> and then I, I didn't think about writing. I didn't have any uh, sort of major writing projects until I got to college and started thinking about writing plays. Uh, but in retrospect, it's interesting to me that the only major piece of writing that I did as a kid was uh, an attempt to kind of contextualize my own existence within a, a larger ancestral story without, within a larger historical context. Um, and that to some extent is what I've continued to do as an adult. So you said you were 10 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, or maybe you still have the actual yeah. result of what you were, do you, how did you know what questions to ask? You know, you're 10 years old. It's sometimes difficult to, I remember as being a 10 year old, I didn't looking back have context, you know. I mean, it's possible that my grandmother guided the conversation more than it was that, you know, there was sort of the, my general desire to know things about her family and her father's story and everything. and. Um, and probably, and you know, I don't really remember this, I'm kind of just making this up, but probably um, she was able to kind of tell it in a fairly chronological way. And the, the, the piece that, was, uh, that I ended up writing uh, was called Only Three Generations, uh, because it's based on this sort of saying that um, the, the wealth of a Chinese family lasts only three generations, which actually that idea exists in an idiom in the West as well. Um, I think shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves or something in three generations is the phrase in the West. But anyway, um, so, you know, so it's a, it, as a story, it lays out pretty easily <laughs> because you can just go, okay, this is what my great, great grandfather did this night. Yeah. So, um, that would be my guess. And then I probably ask questions for clarification. Mm. So, so do you remember what it was, if anything, that you were sort of like, 
focused on as a young person between that time, you know, when you got to go to the Philippines and then when you finally get to college and start writing, like what was your childhood like in Los Angeles? Oh, I was, I became, my high school years were very much about something which is um, super geeky, um, where I was a competitive debater. Um, so I think it's, you know, in a, for people who are, have a lot of competitive instinct, but are no good at sports. Um, that's where you end up. And I went to a public high school, which, um, you know, was not great, um, but I did, I, I became a competitive debater and I was quite good at it and uh, ended up being recruited my senior year of high school to go to this kind of fancy um, private school in LA and, um, because they needed somebody, they had to recruit somebody to be uh, the partner for their head debater because they're you know two-person team. So I spent a lot of my high school years focusing on that. I was also a musician. Um, I, I was raised as a violinist and was an okay violinist. I don't think I was great, but I played in some pit orchestras. So I got exposed to musicals that way. Uh, and then when I got to college, I started improvising as a violinist. I became a jazz violinist for a number of years, and I was much better as an improviser than I was as a classical musician. So you get to college and you start writing. You start writing plays. So yeah, I you know saw some plays uh, my freshman year. I um, I went to Stanford, and uh, they you know, you'd go with your dorm. And I saw a couple plays at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Um, I remember um, seeing uh, The Winter's Tale and uh, Thornton Wilder's The Matchmaker and thinking, oh, maybe I can do this. So I started writing plays in my spare time because Stanford at the time uh, didn't have any playwriting classes. Um, and I found a professor who was head of the write, a creative writing department, not a playwright, uh, but a novelist who taught a class in contemporary drama um, and uh, asked if he would take a look at my plays. And uh, he did. And he told me they were, you know, they were bad, which they were. And that my problem was that I wanted to write plays, but I didn't actually know anything about the theater. But the same professor was a good guy. Um, and helped me design a playwriting major within the creative writing department. Um, and I basically saw as many plays and read as many plays as I could for the next few years. Um, and I've kept in touch with that professor, all, all these, uh, I mean, he passed away just two years ago, but we've been in, uh, we were in touch all that time. Why do you think it was plays? Like, why do you think you saw a play and you're like, I could do that rather than like, yeah. read a novel or a poem? Okay, so fact. I, you know, like a lot of people who are interested in creative writing, I took, uh, you know, short story writing when I was uh, a freshman and actually took it with Tobias Wolf, who at the time was a grad student there. Um, and uh, he was great, but I just, I don't know. I didn't, I mean, my, I don't think they were terrible, but I, it, nothing kind of sparked. Um, and then with plays, I really liked the idea of creating a world in my head, but then uh, having it come to life physically in front of me. There was something about that which, uh, which appealed to me. And then also uh, because I'd been raised um, uh, evangelical, 
Um, we have a lot of pastors in the family. And um, so there is something about religious ritual and about language, about hearing language that I think was an inherent part of my upbringing and all those things came together and uh, made me feel like plays were something that I wanted to do. Do you remember what it was like when you first started to put pen to paper in your first in your first plays? I mean, I like what were you using? Your teacher clearly responded with. <laughs> I was using other plays as models, which I probably still do today. Um, so, you know, I read Tom Stoppard and I wrote something kind of intellectual and and you know, and, and theological. Um, but really, I didn't. And, and, and I figured out that, okay, well, you need to kind of structure some scenes and then write those scenes. But I hadn't figured out how to make my characters kind of come to life. And I, then I had the very fortunate experience of uh, between my junior and senior year in college, I was home in LA and I saw an ad in the LA Times um, calendar section, the, the art section that said, study playwriting with Sam Shepard. And Sam was somebody whose work I really got into very early uh, when, this, when my professor had started to recommend people for me to read. Um, so it was the first year of what eventually became a pretty prominent event in Southern California theater called the Padre Hills Playwrights Festival. But this was only the first year that they ever tried to do it. So there were only two of us that applied to be students. So we both got in and there, um, Sam and an, another fantastic playwright uh, and playwriting teacher, uh, Maria Irene Fornes, um, along with uh, some great, you know, Murray Mednick and Walter Hadler, um, they all sort of worked on writing more from the subconscious. And we did exercises to that effect. And again, because I was a violinist and I'd learned to improvise, um, Sam had, they were all doing their own plays too, site-specific stuff. So Sam had me um, provide music for uh, his short play um, that he produced up there. And so when I was talking earlier about, you know, using soft power as a way of kind of accessing my subconscious and understanding and processing my stabbing, I think it goes all the way back to Padua and learning to understand myself there because you know I've ended up having this career where a lot of the stuff that I've done has been about Asian or Asian American themes but when I went to Padua I didn't know that that was what I was interested in and it was really only by going through these processes with Sam and Irene uh, that uh, I found that these themes started appearing on the page things like immigration and assimilation and racism and clash of culture. So clearly some part of me was incredibly interested in this, but my conscious mind hadn't figured that out yet. And that became, I, I think a template for me as an artist to use the writing process to decompartmentalize myself a bit and you know, really get in touch with things that I might have been uh, reticent to have acknowledged. Was your identity anything you had spent time thinking about or being aware of in the context of, you know, American culture growing up in California? 
No, I mean, I wasn't really aware of that um, consciously. Uh, if I look back, I go, oh, well, when I was a kid, if I knew there was going to be a, a, a movie or a TV show with Asian characters, I would go out of my way to avoid it because I had already kind of uh, uh, incorporated at that time the idea that the portrayals of anyone who looked like me would be, you know, painful or cringeworthy or scary or, you know, they'd be jokes or whatever. Um, so I had figured that out on some intuitive level. And then again, if we go back to this notion of, oh, being 10 years old and wanting to write my family history, I think that also ends up being a search for identity, even though I wasn't able to, I didn't know that that was what I was doing. So uh, I, what I love, this goes back to when I started to do these uh, podcasts several years ago, how many touchstones there are, or how many people have been touched by uh, Fornes as a, as a teacher. And uh, I've interviewed several playwrights who have had connection with her. And I find it remarkable because it's sort of like, it spans coast to coast. Uh, it wasn't just like New, like New York writers or Southern California writers, and uh, and I just find it amazing. And and what a, a wonderful artist and teacher she is to have sort of like cr help create a whole generation of artists. And then I've I've learned from somebody who learned from her. So I feel like it's trickled down. Yeah, no, Irene, I think, is the, you know, great playwriting teacher of her generation. I, I would argue that uh, Paula Vogel then became the great playwriting, you know, she, she inherited that and that Lynn Nottage is maybe that now. Um, but uh, there are these, you know, sort of giants as mentors who, as you say, create a whole generation of writers and their influence then trickles down further to, to subsequent generations. Yeah, I think it's amazing and wonderful. Um, anyway, so going back to, to Padua and you're, you're taking these, I don't know, are, they, are they workshops? I'm not sure how to, how to frame those. Yeah, I mean, it's basic. They were doing their own exercises for themselves. And there were only, yes, again, since there were only two students, we just kind of went along with it. In this time, you were talking about how you sort of sort of started to figure out what it is you wanted to write about. Do you remember uh, the first time that started to coalesce in, in, a, in a play? I think it's because I went to, that same summer I went out on a double date with my cousin and then um, this Got, she was dating this guy who just come from Hong Kong, whose name was Steve, and uh, he showed up in a limousine, and we all went to Westwood, you know, the sort of near UCLA, um, and saw Omen Two, and I just started writing about that at Padua, uh, and it eventually became a, a play that I wrote to be done in my dorm the following academic year, my senior year, which then ended up going to the public theater and it became my first play called um, FOB. And in it, there is a, an autobiographical character who doesn't have my name and a cousin and a guy named Steve from Hong Kong who shows up in a limousine. 
I'm curious to, to hear about uh, writing it and, and having the intention of performing it in your dorm to the public theater. Like there's, there's gotta be a, like, how did that happen? You know? Yeah, I can see, I mean, it's very, you Like know, dear I Joe Papp, here's a new play. Yeah, I was, I was super lucky. Um, and I mean, I think I'm a good writer, but it's unquestionably, there's a huge element of luck. And so a couple things happened. Um, one was, I would say an interface with um, community activism, which is around the time that I was staging this play in my dorm, the public had produced a play in which a Caucasian actress cast in an Asian role going back to that theme. And this led to protests by the Asian actors of that day who were, now we're talking 1979, so uh, 78. So they were few in number, they didn't have any power and they protested outside uh, the public theater on Lafayette Avenue. And um, Joe Papp, who was still running the place, Joe, uh, because he, a big part of his mission was to create a theater that looked like New York. Um, he ended up inviting the protesters into his office and hiring one of them onto his staff with a brief to find place for Asian actors. And it was about that time that my play came across their desk. So I'm the beneficiary of affirmative action, right? Because that's what affirmative action does. It like it identifies a social need and then creates a program to address that. Um, it, this was all done by Joe, but um, that's how I got into the public theater. And then the other thing that happened was um, uh, we did a reading for Joe at, um, this is the summer after I graduated. Um, and he took me into his office and, you know, said, oh, you know, I like the play, but I have some notes. And uh, I wanted him to like me, of course, uh, but I didn't actually agree with the notes. Um, but I knew enough not to say I did disagree with the notes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So he said, you know, do another draft and um, uh, send it to me and I'll decide if I want to do the play. So I went back to San Francisco Bay Area where I was living and uh, waited about three weeks and then sent him back the exact same script. <laughs> and um, 10 days later, the phone rings and it's Joe Papp and he says, okay, the play's great, now we're gonna do it. <laughs> So that's how I got my first production. It was a combination of community activism on the one hand, but also I think my learning that, you know, you have to like how to filter criticism. Like you have to listen to the notes that people give you because every now and then people say something that's really important or at the very least they point to a problem that you need to then solve. Uh, but then there's ultimately it's still your play and you have to do what you think is best. I love that. It's like a it's like a Jedi mind trick you pulled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't I don't know that I would know how to do that anymore. And also <laughs> most people nowadays when they give you notes, they take notes on their notes. So that, but <laughs> Uh, so within all of this, was there a moment or maybe it happened later or maybe it's never happened where you said, oh, maybe I can be a playwright? The moment that 
I think is most important to my claiming myself as a playwright was actually a few years later um, because I was freakishly fortunate to um, have this first play at the public and then Joe produced my next three plays in uh, the early 80s. So of course I was going to be a playwright because there wasn't, I mean, why would you not be a playwright under those circumstances? Um, but then I did my first play that um, didn't succeed. That was a flop off Broadway. Um, it was not produced by Joe, it was produced at, at second stage. And, um, and I feel that every time, I mean, success is great, but every time I have a failure, I learn something super important. And one of the things I learned from that experience is I came out of it, um, you know, not being praised and not getting, a, 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 you know, getting a bad review of the New York Times and all that stuff and feeling, you know, it's still really important that I did this. Like I needed, this is something that I needed to write and going back to this notion of writing fundamentally for me being about um, understanding myself and my place in the world more clearly. Um, that was, it was still a win. And once that happened, then I felt, okay, well, I guess I'm always gonna be a playwright because it's not just about the external positive reinforcement. Um, it is about the, the importance of the work itself to my understanding of myself and the world around me. And this, this moment clearly demonstrates what you said earlier about your ability to compartmentalize, right? Because that can be devastating for somebody. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember when FOB, the first play, opened at the public, I thought, okay, I'm not going to stay for opening night because I, I want to literally put distance between myself and the event. Like, I don't want to think if the reviews are good, I don't want to think I'm a, you know, I'm a genius. If they're bad, I don't want to think, you know, I'm, I'm crap. Um, so, you know, nowadays it's of course much harder to put physical distance between yourself and anything, but I still think the principle is right. Um, and whether I'm a little pathologically compartmentalized or not, the idea that somehow you have to kind of create a buffer zone between yourself and the external reception of your work still feels like the right thing to do to protect yourself as an artist. I've read somewhere that, uh, and this might be misquoting you terribly because it's the internet, but you you said a, you, you said that when you write something, you're you're starting off with a question that you're asking that you want to answer. So in that in that play that didn't do well was there was there still a question that you were reaching for or was this not an approach you had found yet no that i think that was an approach back then i don't know that i probably have codified it and learned to articulate it better over the decades but um and that play i was also i was dealing with the uh my history coming from uh a, a family of evangelicals and also what it meant to ha be to have some success in the uh, so-called material world uh, but up against 
a history of um, encouragement to focus only on the spiritual world? And I still think that's a perfectly good question. Uh, it just, I, it wasn't a good play. Um, yeah. And I revisited that question again, what, a decade or so later in a play called Golden Child, which um, did, you know, did better and, and made it to Broadway. And um, so a lot of times these questions are projects where I don't get it right the first time, but if the question is intriguing, it may lead to something else. Um, another example of that is the play I was talking about earlier, Yellow Face, essentially being a, a redo of my attempt to write a play about the Miss Saigon protests, which my first shot at that was a, a farce called Face Value, which closed on Broadway in previews, like it was that bad. Um, but it, the question was still important to me and I mulled it over and tried to find another way to do it for the next whatever 12 years and eventually wrote Yellow Face. I love that you hang on to these <laughs> until you feel like, I don't know, it seems to me like, like it's, 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 a, and it's an artistic satisfaction that you're looking for, but also like you need the, the, the intellectual emotional answer to the question itself. Yeah, I mean, if the question's really important, then I still wanna answer it whether or not I was successful at doing it the first time. I'm thinking about how amazing it was that Joe Papp produced your first few plays like that. And how that it seems it seems like that, despite hitting a bump with uh, that that play at second stage that didn't do well, but it sort of set a trajectory for you. And and what a gift that must have been to just have these happen in succession. Yeah, no, it's an amazing privilege, and you can't ask for a better way to be set up as a young playwright. Um, you know, there's also the risk that you end up being destroyed by something like that. Um, and there's examples of writers who uh, were given great opportunities, um, some, of, some of them by Joe Papp, and, you know, had a great first play and then uh, didn't end up following up on that. So there's how you navigate all that, I think, is... Uh, is kind of a test of yourself as an artist, but all things being equal, yeah, who wouldn't want that? How, you, how much of this were you aware of in real time? I mean, I think I was aware of feeling, of feeling pressure to, um, to keep up a certain level of um, artistic success. And the other good thing about having a failure was, you know, it just kind of burst that bubble. It's the same as then the play after the second stage play that flopped was M Butterfly. So that became my first Broadway hit. Uh, and then there was this another sort of huge bubble of expectation, which I consciously or unconsciously decided to pop by writing Face Valley, which closed in preview. So it, at a certain point, um, I think I, came to understand um, success or failure or hits or flops, you know, you can't really control that stuff. Um, all you can do is tr 
try to stay on your course as a writer and continue doing the, the work that's important to you and everything else is icing on the cake. You, 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 talked, you talked earlier about that, that first opening night and uh, being like, I don't, I don't think I wanna be there for that. By the time you got to M Butterfly opening on Broadway, were you able to compartmentalize that now and enjoy the moment? Yeah, no, I figured out at that point that probably I need to go to most of my openings. Um, and certainly a Broadway opening. Um, I, I think I just told myself, you know, I never expected to have a play on Broadway, period. So um, no matter what happens, um, the fact that I am opening a Broadway play at all is a win. And um, I did find that going towards opening night, the, I would just sort of develop, I guess it was more pressure than off-Broadway because I would kind of develop this involuntary gag, gag reflex. So I guess I wasn't able to compartmentalize completely. Um, and we had had a very tough tryout in Washington, DC. We'd gotten bad reviews in DC um, and uh, one of our producers tried to um, abort the show and not bring us to New York. And our other producer, Stuart Ostro, um, had to mortgage his house to get us to uh, New York. And it's just one, you know, it's one of those Broadway stories which uh, happily had a, a good ending, but um, very dramatic. Did you, do you think that experience, you know, having such a great success and, you know, winning a Tony, did it change you? Like, did you feel changed having gone through that experience? I mean, it, it does change you in that it changes your context. And given that we're social beings and our sense of self is often determined to some extent by context, you know, you should change a little. Um, and you should change whether or not you have a success or a failure because you grow up. But I think, you know, the reason it is often the case if you look at people from any artistic field or probably any profession that it is often the case that people, when they achieve their dream, it's, they go through a really rough period emotionally. Probably if they're in a relationship or a marriage that breaks up and they're often depressed. And I think that's because um, you expect you, you, that, oh, if, as, if I'm only successful, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be fulfilled. Then whatever is missing in me uh, is going to, to, to be sated. And you know that's not how it works. And, and so when you have a big success, and you're still lonely, or you still feel dissatisfied, it's more depressing and scarier and a bigger existential crisis than it was uh, when you were not a success, before you achieved your dream. Have you found yourself in those, yeah. in those moments of depression? Yeah, I feel like the, well, I feel like the first the first year after the success of M Butterfly on Broadway was, was very hard emotionally. And I feel like I kind of got unmoored a little. 
you know, I eventually got back and I think having a big flop helped. Um, Why did you feel like you were unmoored? Was it because the, you know, the high was just over? No, well, I think there's the high of success. And then it's what I was just talking about, that it's not actually a kind of spiritual or psychological solution to one's problems. Um, And that success is, it's, and I've come to learn success is good. You can make a living. You can get good seats at restaurants. You can, you know, there's, but it, to be happy as a person is kind of a whole nother journey. Well, how did you how did you find your way out of out of that period? Um, I, I, I mean, like I said, I think having a flop really helped. Um, and eventually, but isn't that I, counterintuitive? Isn't that counterintuitive that like you're you're feeling low after this riding this high, and then this flop happens? It feels like a second because low. the flop happens and you don't die. <laughs> You know, the worst thing in the world happens. You open a show, I mean, your, your show goes to Broadway and it closes in previews and it's super humiliating. And then it's like, oh, okay, so what's the next play? It, in a way it's, it's horrible, but it's easier in a different sense than the big success. During, during this time period, so like, um the first off-Broadway flop through a butterfly and and through face value. Did, did you have collaborators you're working with regularly or like people who uh, helped you, you know, workshop your plays? Did you have sort of like, it's not a team, but like collaborators, like like-minded collaborators to, to work with? I feel like I didn't settle down with a set of collaborators until, um, until Yellowface, when I started working regularly with Lee Silverman as my director. The other person who became important in my life starting in the early 90s uh, was Oscar Eustace. Um, And Oscar at the time was a associate artistic director at Center Theater Group Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Um, and he directed a short play of mine at Louisville. And I said, you know, I said to myself, this is, he's the best dramaturg in America for me. So uh, we continued working closely together over the subsequent decades. And then it worked out, you know, for, for him and also for me when he became artistic director of the public theater um, and a kind of nice serendipity since the public is where I've, um, done, I premiered the majority of my work. What made him so good as a dramaturg for you? I mean, I think what Oscar is able to do is first of all, understand what the playwright is trying to achieve. Um, And then uh, kind of internalize that and help you to become and help your play to become the best version of itself. Um, and I think, you know, when I teach or when I uh, give notes on things, that's what I've tried to learn from him, that the most important thing is to understand first what the intention of the piece is, uh, and then hopefully try to make it better. 
when Hollywood started to call, you know, right now in the era we're living in now, playwrights are like all over television. And I'm wondering what it was like when you first started to get these calls. Yeah, I have always been interested in working in other forms. I've always thought about uh, working in Hollywood, not so much in television uh, in the old days, because television at that point was just broadcast television and it, it you know, it didn't feel like it particularly interesting writing, although there was some interesting writing then looking back. But anyway, um, as I always wanted to write movies as well. And this was a time in the early 80s when I first had, you know, FOB in the early place done at the public, when there was still the mentality that playwrights shouldn't write for Hollywood, that somehow this was going to um, either corrupt you or burn yourself out or something. Um, and that never made sense to me, even when I was in my early 20s. I felt like, how can it be bad to learn how to write another dramatic form? And wouldn't these things all inform each other? Um, so that was always my attitude about the question. So I had my first screenwriting job uh, when I was 24, uh, right after my, I guess my first three plays, two or three plays I'd been down at the public. I mean, it wasn't a big screenwriting job, but it was something uh, that I wanted to be involved in. Um, so I, yeah, I think it, as you say at the moment, um, that it is sort of generally acknowledged that we can do all these things. Right, and you've recently worked on- Oh, The Affair. The Affair, right, I was gonna call it The Divorce. <laughs> uh. But you were in a writer's room with other playwrights, mm -hmm. were you, weren't you? Yes. As a playwright who has not worked in, in television before, was there a sense of like, uh, we're playwrights and we know each other, we, like whether you knew each other or not, but you, you speak a certain language? There is a bit actually. And and um, I mean, the creator of the affair is a playwright named Sarah Treem. And Sarah was my mentee um, when she did her first show at, Playwrights Horizons. Um, so I've known her since then. Um, we just got really close. And so when she, uh, when it, the affair was going to become a thing, she asked if I wanted to come work on it. And I felt this was a good opportunity to learn stuff. And it was what I've always tried to do with Sarah, which is, again, try to understand what she wants to do and try to help her do it better, except it would be a job. So my mentee became my boss um, for four years and it, it worked out great. Um, and I think Sarah is conscious and invested in being a playwright and having playwrights in the room. And so therefore, particularly our room, I don't know how other rooms uh, operate in this regard, but our room felt like, um, you know, very kind of theater oriented. You know, you talk about, uh, we mentioned earlier about your inclination to be starting with a question when you're writing a play, like a question you want answered. Are you able to think of uh, TV scripts similarly, even if it's sort of like your own secret question? Like, are you still approaching TV writing that way? Yeah, and um, you know, I'm interested now that I've done, uh, you know, been in a writer's room for four years, I'm interested in creating a show of my own. 
Um, and certainly if you're the showrunner, if you're creating the thing, then it does involve a question that I want to answer. Um, where it comes to working on other people's material, I think you or I like to find a question, like what is interesting to me about this that specifically relates to me? What am I exploring here? And um, I, you know, you get assigned episodes to write or, or work with the showrunner to decide which ones you're writing. And I generally, we would land on episodes that I felt a particular affinity to, or the subject matter was something that I wanted to explore, and I could ask some sort of question. Were you able to find uh, through that process satisfying answers to your questions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've also come to feel over the years that there are projects where I'm the principal artist and everybody is supposed to support my vision, um, which generally is the plays. And then there are projects where I go in as a craftsperson to try to support somebody else's vision. Um, and there's honor in both those things. There's something there's sometimes it's nice just to be the craftsperson too. <laughs> On the topic of the questions that you ask yourself uh, when you start new projects, do you have, are there new questions or questions that are still sort of like stuck in your craw that you want to ask? I think there are new questions, but the new questions usually relate to old questions. Um, I feel like writers generally, we have uh, some patch of soil that is our garden um, that's most fertile for us. And uh, we tend to go back to that patch of earth um, to, um, for, 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 to, to plant new things. You know, I've been interested, for instance, in, in US-China relations in one sense or another. Um, for my whole career. But I'm also nowadays, um, say with soft power, I was interested in this whole question of what is it, why does China not have quote unquote soft power that is sort of cultural influence or artistic influence over the rest of the world as much as China desires soft power and it has been a stated goal of the Communist Party to try to gain it. And yet, you know, we, we K-pop is super popular or Bollywood is super popular or Hong Kong movies, but nothing from China. So that leads to the question, can you have a cultural product which appeals to the world created under an authoritarian system where there's censorship. Now, as an American, I tend to think, no, you can't, but that may be, I may be looking at it through a biased lens. So, you know, that is a version of a larger question that I have about US-China relations. And, you know, similarly, I've always been interested in Asian American issues and multiculturalism. And at the moment, those questions dovetail with uh, my investigation of the crisis in democracy and the degree to which the crisis in democracy is um, motivated by uh, you know, white supremacy, white fragility, and what does it mean to be an Asian American in that context? Um, so similarly, it's a current question, but part of 
a larger set of questions that I've been asking for my whole career, even going back to being 10 years old. Is there something new that you're working on? Um, well, we are um, developing a new post-2020 version of Soft Power. Uh, our commercial producers are, are continue to be very supportive. And um, we don't feel that this version needs to relitigate the 2016 election as much. Um, but I am really interested in what it means to be an Asian American now against the backdrop of racist hate and the crisis in democracy. Is there, so is there some uh, promise to a future with soft power? We, do, we intend to come back to New York and fingers crossed Broadway. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> I, well, I, I hope that, I hope that for you and I hope that for Thank you so much to David. I just feel unbelievably honored to be able to talk to incredible people and playwrights like David. There was just so much more I wanted to talk about. All I needed was like three more hours. So anyway, I'm pulling for the musical he wrote with Janine Tesori, Soft Power, to land on Broadway soon. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song to the subtext is by International Pen Pal. This month's episode was produced and edited by me. Our associate producer is KJ Jarbo. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent and the team at American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Daisy Violet, the Bitch Beast King by Sam Collier. It's about repression, rebellion, trauma, agency. It's darkly hilarious and moving. Go read Daisy Violet, the Bitch Beast King as soon as you can.